Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. Hello, welcome back. In the last video, we heard Abinadi's message to King Noah and his priests. Before hearing his message, they wanted to kill Abinadi. Today we'll talk about the reaction after hearing his message and the series of events that his message set in motion. But we need to leave Abinadi in suspense for just a minute and answer the trivia question we asked last time. Where did the word Mormon come from? Until rather recently, members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints called themselves Mormons. It was a name used to make fun of early members of the church because of their belief in the Book of Mormon. But over time, church members embraced the name. But where did the Book of Mormon get its name? It got its name from Mormon, the author. The Book of Mormon literally is Mormon's book, or the book that he wrote. But where did Mormon get his name? So Mormon chapter 1 verse 5 says that he was named after his father. But 3 Nephi 5 verse 12 says, And behold, I am called Mormon, being called after the land of Mormon, the land in which Alma did establish the church among his people. But where did the land of Mormon get its name? Mosiah 18.4 tells us, And it came to pass that as many as did believe him did go forth to a place which was called Mormon, having received its name from the king, being in the borders of the land, having been infested by times or at seasons by wild beasts. So the land of Mormon received its name from the king, apparently because it was a beast-infested border town. So ultimately, the word Mormon came from King Noah and likely means infested by wild beasts. I wonder how King Noah would have reacted knowing that his only lasting contribution to the world would be his bad example and the name he gave to a small patch of land. Okay, back to Abinadi. How did King Noah and his priests respond to Abinadi's sermon? Verse 1, And now it came to pass that when Abinadi had finished these sayings, the king commanded that the priests should take him and cause that he should be put to death. Pretty straightforward, let's not mess around, let's put him to death. But one of these priests a young man named Alma believed the words of Abinadi, and he knew that the things the king and his priests were accused of were true. So he asked the king to let Abinadi simply depart in peace. As you might imagine, this did not go over well. Verse 3, But the king was more wroth and caused that Alma should be cast out from among them, and sent his servants after him that they might slay him. It says the king caused him to be cast out from among them. So at a minimum, he was probably tossed out of the building, but I wonder if it also means that he was expelled from the order of the priests, or expelled from the group of priests. Alma hid from the king's servants who were seeking to kill him, and while he was in hiding, quote, he did write all the words which Abinadi had spoken. Alma eventually became a prophet who changed the entire trajectory of the Nephite and Lamanite nations. The narrator calls him a young man, 
using dates given throughout the Book of Mormon, we can calculate that he was 25 years old when he heard Abinadi. If you want me to go into that at some point, let me know. Meanwhile, back in court, the priest did something interesting. Although the king had said to kill Abinadi immediately, they didn't. Instead, they went back and reviewed what Abinadi had said and compared it to the Law of Moses or the Scriptures or whatever religious document was supposed to be governing the people. I find this fascinating because although these priests were adulterous and, as it turns out, murderous, they still seem to like playing the part of clergymen. It's so incredibly hypocritical. It's, it's similar to Jesus being condemned by the Sanhedrin. And it makes me wonder if Noah's priests had deluded themselves at some level into thinking they were doing the right thing. They spent three days dissecting his message while Abinadi sat in prison until they found a justification for killing him. At the end of three days, King Noah was briefed by his priests, and he brought Abinadi back from the prison. Verse 7, And he said unto him, Abinadi, we have found an accusation against thee, and thou art worthy of death. His phrasing makes it pretty transparent what they were trying to do. It took three days, but they finally, quote, found an accusation that justified killing him. What was his crime? It was probably blasphemy, which was a capital crime under the law of Moses. Here's verse 8. For thou hast said that God himself should come down among the children of men. And now for this cause thou shalt be put to death, unless thou wilt recall all the words which thou hast spoken evil concerning me and my people. Just imagine that for a minute. Imagine how different life must have been living under the law of Moses, where saying that God would come down among his children could earn you a literal death sentence. Noah demanded that Abinadi retract his statement, all of his message, if he wished to live. But Abinadi refused. He told Noah that he had intentionally allowed himself to fall into the king's hands. And then he continued, Yea, and I will suffer even until death, and I will not recall my words. And they shall stand as a testimony against you. And if ye slay me, you will shed innocent blood, and this shall also stand as a testimony against you at the last day. Something about this statement frightened the king, and verse 11 says that he was about to release Abinadi. Perhaps in his heart of hearts, King Noah was a God-fearing man, albeit a rather disobedient one, who knew he was in the wrong. Perhaps something stirred inside him, causing him to reconsider his wayward path. Perhaps this gave Abinadi a glimmer of hope. But not the priests. When the priests saw the king's reaction, they went ballistic. He has reviled the king. Are you going to let him disrespect you like that? So Noah became angry again and delivered Abinadi to his executioners. Paintings or illustrations of Abinadi's execution generally show him being burned at the stake, but based on the wording, I don't think that's what happened. Most people being burned at the stake die from suffocation or smoke inhalation rather than from being burned by the flames themselves. Abinadi, though, was not that lucky. His execution was slow and it was deliberate. Verse 13, And it came to pass that they took him and bound him and scourged his skin with faggots, yea, even unto death. A faggot is a bundle of sticks or twigs, so rather than lighting the flame beneath him, they tortured his skin with burning branches. Starting in verse 14, as, quote, the flames began to scorch him, 
He gave a final prophecy. He prophesied that the priest's descendants would execute many believers by fire. The priests would have all manner of diseases because of their iniquities. They'd be hunted and driven just as predators pursue a flock. Verse 18, And in that day ye shall be hunted, and ye shall be taken by the hand of your enemies, and then ye shall suffer as I suffer, the pains of death by fire. I don't know if that sentence is saying that they will suffer just like he's suffering, or if he's prophesying specifically that they will suffer the pains of death by fire as he is. King Noah was later burned by fire, but the priests were not. I've sometimes wondered how we know the details about Abinadi's execution in his final prophecy. Who recorded that? Alma was gone. How did Mormon know what happened so he could include it in the summary? Maybe one of Noah's guards later told Alma, or maybe Mormon found court records. I, we will never know for sure. In chapter 18, the camera pans over to Alma, the young priest who had objected to killing Abinadi. He, quote, repented of his sins and iniquities and went about privately among the people and began to teach the words of Abinadi. In reading this, it seems that either not everyone knew that Alma had received a death sentence, or he was highly selective about who he talked to. Those who believed his words met together in a land called Mormon that we talked about in the trivia question. This land of Mormon had a fountain of pure water with a nearby thicket of trees where Alma hid from the king's searches. I wonder if the trees prevented the land of Mormon from being seen from the high towers that King Noah had built. There was one day in particular where everyone who believed in Alma's teachings gathered at Mormon to hear him teach. After giving a sermon about repentance, redemption, and faith, he pointed to the water flowing from the spring and said, Behold, here are the waters of Mormon, for thus they were called. And now, as ye are desirous to come into the fold of God and be called as people and are willing to bear one another's burdens that they may be light, yea, and are willing to mourn with those that mourn, comfort those that stand in need of comfort and stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places that you may be in, even until death, that you may be redeemed of God and be numbered with those of the first resurrection, that you may have eternal life. Now, I say unto you, if this be the desire of your hearts, what have you against being baptized in the name of the Lord as a witness before him that you have entered into a covenant with him? that you will serve him and keep his commandments, that he may pour out his spirit more abundantly upon you. If you're committed to following God's teachings, he asks, why not make a covenant with him so that he can bless you, so that he can pour out his blessings more abundantly upon you? One of the things that we learn from the Book of Mormon is that to simply keep our Heavenly Father's commandments by itself is to sell ourselves short. He invites us to enter into a covenant with him. He loves to bless us, and the covenant of baptism and other covenants, which are all much more for our benefit than for His, allows Him to bless us when we're righteous. And He already knows that because of our fallen nature, we will unavoidably fall short on our side of the covenant or of the contract. But rather than being discouraged by knowing that we're going to break the covenant, He even more insistently encourages us to renew the covenant every week. Again, this is much more for our benefit than for his. But in addition to receiving his guidance in the Spirit, we're baptized for an even more critical reason. It's a requirement for salvation. How necessary is baptism for salvation? 
Nephi shows us in 2 Nephi 31. Speaking of Jesus Christ, he asks, Know ye not that he was holy, referring to the Savior, but notwithstanding he being holy, he humbleth himself before the Father, and witnesseth unto the Father that he would be obedient unto him in keeping his commandments. So how serious is the need to enter into a covenant with our Heavenly Father? Nephi continues by telling us that, verse 9, It showeth unto the children of men the straightness of the path and the narrowness of the gate by which they should enter, he having set the example before them. The Savior's baptism was an example to us in two ways. First, he showed that even he, the world's Savior, was willing to be baptized as an example to us. But second, it shows us that the Savior needed to be baptized despite being holy. I, I knew from Moroni chapter 8 that children do not require baptism because they are innocent. And so I wondered, what about the Savior who is also sin-free? So I looked up the verse. It's Moroni chapter 8 verse 10, and it says that Baptism is for, quote, those who are accountable and capable of committing sin. Although the Savior was sinless, he was capable of committing sin. Alma's people at the Waters of Mormon were eager to be baptized. Alma said a quick prayer, O Lord, pour out thy spirit upon thy servant, that he may do this work with holiness of heart. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he began baptizing. He began with a man called Helam. Both... Alma and Helam submerged themselves in the water. It's unusual for the baptizer to go under the water with the person being baptized. This is the only instance of it happening in the scriptures that I know of. Perhaps Alma wanted to officially abandon his formerly wicked behavior by being born again. Reading about Alma's desire for rebaptism makes me appreciate the weekly opportunity to renew baptismal covenants that we have when we partake of the sacrament. This privilege was unavailable to church members before the Savior introduced it to his apostles at the Last Supper. We might also wonder how Alma had authority to baptize, or by whom he was ordained. Despite being wicked and lacking the worthiness to exercise their priesthood in any meaningful way, Noah's priests, including Alma, must have been ordained by someone with the authority to give the priesthood. Mosiah 11.5 tells us that Noah dismissed his father's priest and, quote, consecrated new ones in their stead. So someone had the ability to ordain and consecrate. After baptizing Helam, Alma baptized the rest of the group. Verse 15 tells us that he did not immerse himself in the water with them as he had done with Helam. Then, after baptizing 204 people, he organized the church. Members were to meet weekly on a designated day to teach and worship. He ordained one member in 50 to be a priest. Apparently there would have been four priests. Unlike King Noah's priests, these priests were required to be self-sufficient and limit their teaching to faith, repentance, and things taught by Alma or the other prophets. King Noah, though, sensed that something was up. He, quote, discovered a movement among the people and he sent his servants to investigate and find out what was going on. When he heard what Alma was doing, quote, the king said that Alma was stirring up his people in rebellion against him, and he sent his army to destroy them. The Lord warned Alma that an army was on its way. Alma and his followers, which now numbered about 450 people, gathered one last time at the waters of Mormon with their flocks, grain, tents, and then they fled into the wilderness. We'll pick up their story when we get to Mosiah chapter 23. 
Next time, we're going to talk about what happened to King Noah and his priests. It did not end well for them. Now it's time for us to end with a trivia question. This one may be easy if you've been paying attention. When Zenith, who was King Noah's father, when Zenith and his people came south to the land of their inheritance, the Lamanite king gave them permission to occupy two cities. One of them was the city of Lehi-Nephi, or the city of Nephi. What was the name of the other city? So again, the question is, in addition to the city of Nephi or Lehi-Nephi, what other city were the Nephites given to occupy? And we will see you next time.